Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, the former space station commander and astronaut Colonel Chris Hatfield discusses the pressure of dealing with dangerous situations in space. Space flight is joyous and magnificent, and it's the ultimate arc of a heroic story. You know, great quest and, and difficulty and loss of life and personal risk and personal change and growth and then triumph. You know, it's, it's a tremendous human adventure. Plus, Monaco's Welsh contingent tells us why their homeland wants them back. We look at Ireland as a case study of a country that has been able to kind of pick itself up and make the most of its advantages, and perhaps Wales can always learn a lot from that. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. We begin today's show with a look back at a special edition of The Stack. Last Saturday's show was dedicated to the Monocle Media Summit, which took place in London last week. Among the highlights were journalist and broadcaster Christina Craw, Finnish news anchor Matti Rönke, BBC News presenter Michel Hussein, Zeit magazine's Christoph Ament, plus so much more. In this clip we hear a very interesting panel with Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief inter- National correspondent in conversation here with our very own Georgina Godwin. Clarissa, tell us what it was like for you being in Afghanistan at that time of such major change. Well, I think sometimes as a correspondent, you have the privilege of having a front row seat on history in the making, and, and this was one of those rare instances. We had been in Afghanistan already for two weeks. It was clear that the Taliban was on the ascent, but no one could have predicted such a, the, you know, the fact that Kabul fell in a matter of hours with hardly a shot fired. And so you found yourself in this sort of dizzying position as a journalist, having covered this conflict for well over a decade of, what do we do? Do we go out on the streets? Are they going to try to hurt us? Are they going to try to kidnap us? What do we wear? How do we speak to them? But it was also a tremendously exciting moment because you did. We got up the next morning and we went out on the streets and we put cameras in their faces and asked them lots of questions. And they were very keen to talk as well because they had a message that they wanted to deliver to the world. So it was surreal, but also on a journalistic level, very exciting. And on a human level, very desperate. And I mean, that's not obviously the first time you've been in that kind of situation. Uh, you won awards for your, your work in Aleppo in, in, and in Syria. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this now for over 15 years, and I've covered many different conflicts, um, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, I lived in Lebanon for years. I was in Georgia in 2008 during the Russian incursion. I was kidnapped in Ukraine by pro-Russian separatists. So I've been doing it for a long time. But I will say that it's a really unusual moment where you are just watching this epic scene unfold. And as the days went by in Afghanistan and we saw Kandahar fall and we saw Herat fall and then they were at the gates of Kabul, And then we saw all the police and military in the streets of Kabul took their uniforms off. They were still manning their checkpoints, but they took their uniforms off. And you had this moment of realizing 
This is actually going to happen. After 20 years, in a matter of days, Afghanistan is going to be under the control of the Taliban again. And what an extraordinary thing just in the weeks leading up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, just, uh, yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that. And do you feel some kind of responsibility in, in being there to witness this, to, to write the first draft or report on the first draft of history as possibly one of the only Western voices? I think there's always a huge sense of responsibility. Whenever you're telling someone else's story, you want to make sure that you get it right. And you want to make sure that you're doing justice by the people who are experiencing this and who don't get to just hop on a plane at the end of it and go back home. And so for me, that's a, that's a really awesome sense of responsibility. And am I talking to the right voices? And am I making sure that those voices get a platform? And Am I bearing witness to this moment? And it can be different in different contexts. In Syria, sometimes, it was just about sitting down with someone who had lost a loved one or whatever it might be and just letting them weep or talk. And it might not even end up on the evening news, but just to have the act of a journalist sitting there and listening and bearing witness and, and sharing that moment can be a sort of cathartic experience uh, in and of itself, I think, for, for, for people in these situations. So it's not just about getting the product on television and, and getting the best, the best version that you can out there. It's also about, I think, being a human being as well and understanding that what for you as a journalist might be tremendously exciting for people on the ground might be devastating. How have you seen it change your work over the last 15, 20 years? Well, there's a lot more women doing it now, which is great. <laughs> um, but it's changed enormously as well because the power of social media, which I found, uh, you know, I thought the last panel was super interesting. But from a journalist's perspective, the power of social media has been enormous because it's allowed for a much greater vibrant diversity of voices which I think was definitely needed, and it's also allowed for citizen journalism. So what Hafez al-Assad was able to get away with in the 1980s in Hama, Bashar al-Assad, well, he was able to get away with it, but he wasn't able to get away with it without the world knowing about mm. it, because there were people in those protests every single week holding their cell phones in the sky and capturing the massacres that were taking place. And so that's opened a tremendous amount of opportunity for journalists, but it's also come with some downsides, I would say, because there is perhaps been an inclination in some newsrooms that, well, this whole business of foreign correspondence is very expensive, and if we have people on the ground with their cell phones who can do it for free, basically, and then we can be in London and tell the story from here, then why wouldn't we do it that way? And I would argue that, you know, you need both. You need both things. Um, so I, I think there's been a lot of change in terms of, of how we aggregate information. It's also presented enormous challenges in terms of how we verify information. There is a huge amount of misinformation and disinformation out there, and it's very challenging as a journalist to try to wade through it all and see what you can independently verify and ultimately publish. Clarice Award, CNN's Chief International Correspondent, in conversation with George Nekodwin at this year's Monocle Media Summit.
Up next, we turn to this week's installment of The Big Interview. For the latest episode, Colonel Chris Hatfield looks back on his storied career as a former space station commander and astronaut. The Canadian space oddity is now, among other things, an author. He spoke to Monaco's Andrew Miller about his latest Cold War thriller, The Apollo Murders, and the sheer pressure of dealing with dangerous situations in space. When people knew that uh, I was up on the space station and writing and recording music with the guitar that's up there, and number one, I had never covered a Bowie tune in my life. He's such a good musician and such a complex musician. You can't just cover a Bowie tune. You know, it's not like Peter, Paul, and Mary or something. And, you know, I didn't know the words, and but I thought my son was the was the genesis of it. He said, Dad, uh, learn the words, figure it out, uh, and if you don't do it, you'll regret it forever. Everybody would, would like it. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on. Detach from station and may God's love be with you. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And at one point, the first step was just karaoke. I just, okay, I got David singing, you know, in one earpiece, and I just sang the words along with David. Um, but when I listened to that garage band individual voice track, it sounded far nicer than I had anticipated. The, he he somehow intuitively knew what it was going to feel like to sing on board a spaceship. And he wrote the words that way, even though he wrote it before we walked on the moon, when he was just getting out of his teens. And so that really convinced me, wow, that song sounds right up here. And that's and then I re-recorded, put my guitar track underneath, Friends on Earth put the other instrumentals underneath, M. Griner stuck that beautiful piano intro. And then my son, Evan, said again, Dad, our audio's nice, but people aren't going to believe you did it in space. Make a video. So I sang along with our audio track floating around one afternoon. My son edited it all together with a friend of his and released it. And now hundreds of millions of people have done what you said. And that is seen the reality of space flight, maybe through a different lens. You know, I can draw graphs all day or talk about the physics of it or, or talk about the human experience. But Music is a whole different way to transfer emotion and experience. And I think by covering that Bowie tune, it helped people see what it feels like on board a spaceship. There was also the aspect, I think, that it, it reminded people, and perhaps I don't know, perhaps even reminded astronauts, that that space exploration, though I realise it is extraordinarily difficult and dangerous and technical, and that it is something that everybody must pay meticulous, serious attention to at all times. But it is also this glorious, fabulous adventure um, that humanity has undertaken. Maybe we had all forgotten that we're allowed to 
enjoy this? I don't know how this is creeping into memes and popular media, but uh, if you watch like First Man with Ryan Gosling or um, Ad Astra with uh, Brad Pitt, they're all so sad and grim. I, I don't know why. What, where did they get that from? Space flight is joyous and magnificent and the ultimate you know, challenge. It's it's the ultimate arc of a heroic story, you know, great quest and, and difficulty and loss of life and personal risk and personal change and growth and then triumph. You know, it's it's a tremendous human adventure. Uh, and yet for some reason, uh, it, it's reduced to this ridiculous one dimensional wooden version of what it's truly like. And so, yeah, I think any way that that I can help to share the richness of this human exploration and where we're headed with it, you know, with our latest technologies and capabilities and what it means for us collectively, you know, amongst all the other noise and necessity of daily human life. To me, I'm, I'm in a unique position to share that. And, you know, it's why I wrote this novel. It's, it's why I, I kind of do a lot of things that I do just because of the rareness and the reality of the actual human spaceflight experience. Astronaut Colonel Chris Hatfield speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller there. Staying with Andrew now for our next highlight. The last year and a half has been tough on many of us and particularly difficult on touring musicians, abruptly deprived of venues and audiences. The pandemic has at least furnished musicians, whether they liked it or not, with an opportunity to reflect and write and record. The veteran, if not venerable, folk singer Billy Bragg has just released what he describes as a record of pandemic blues, his 13th studio album, The Million Things That Never Happened. Billy came to Midori House to sit down with Andrew Muller, who began by asking what the pandemic had been like for someone in his line of work. I was just about to go on an Australia-New Zealand tour for six weeks. That got postponed to 2021, which has now been postponed to 2021. 22 in January, and we're now wondering how many of the different separate states are going to be open. Will I be able to go and play in Western Australia? Should I come in 14 days early? You know, the variables are are just incredible. So it has been very strange. And, you know, a pandemic blues album is different because normally when I make a record, when I'm writing songs, I'm asking the listener to come and check out something I'm interested in. Here's this thing going on, whether it's political or personal. Check this out. I think this is important how do you feel about this with the pandemic it's a universal experience so how do you approach that how do you write about something that that we've all experienced but we've all experienced differently so my way of getting to it is to try and write in a broad sense so the album kicks off with a song called should have seen it coming which is broad enough to it could be about brexit could be about the pandemic could be about you know losing your job a health crisis whatever you know it's basically about the situation where you're too busy to actually really be aware of what's going on around you and i think that's a better way of writing about it than actually being specific the only track on the album that is that specific will be the title track the million things that have never happened because that was the last track i wrote and i felt i needed at least one track on there to chime on with something that's actually going down now <laughs> 
Of the many tracks on the album which did strike me, I, I was struck by Mid-Century Modern, which did cause me to reflect that it is, I think, 32 years since the first time I interviewed you. Uh, <laughs> I say. Uh, really? It, Seems it, like just yesterday, it, Andrew. In Sydney, circa 1989 or so. But, but Mid-Century Modern, of course, reflects, I guess, on the generation gap as, as we both now see it from the other side. You were talking about, in the song, about learning lessons from the kids pulling those statues down but I, I do wonder, especially having come up as a you know anti-establishment, angry young man, if you do now ever find yourself thinking, actually, you know what? No, it's the kids that are wrong. Sometimes, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> I walk down the street and see see haircuts that I would, you know, that I'm thinking to myself, whoa, what is going on here? But broadly speaking, you know, I, I for my politics in the 1980s, the world has changed completely since then. Thatcher's mm. dead. You know, that whole ideological way of articulating ideas has changed so it's been upon me to try and change how I talk so I find myself less talking about socialism more talking about empathy you know if socialism isn't about empathy I don't know what it really is about so I haven't changed my politics but I've had to find a new way to articulate them and I'm also aware living as I do in coastal fastness in Dorset that I'm no longer on the front line of where change is happening but fortunately social media allows us to look over the shoulder of younger activists people in their 30s and in their 20s and see what they're talking about so for instance a song like Sexuality, which mm. was a, a song of allyship to the gay community in the 1990s. The gay community, broadly speaking, are doing fine these days. The real front line is the trans community. So I've had to update the lyrics. I've had to tweak the lyrics a little bit to reflect that. And I think I should. And, and, and the big picture then is that as a mid-century modern geezer, you know, I was born in 1957, I, I do need to update my worldview constantly and not as the line before the line you quoted is you know uh, positions I took long ago feel comfy as an old armchair because it is mm. easy to just sit into the way you saw the world back then and be that boring old bloke in the corner who's going on about you know this is all very well but the clash did this years ago <laughs> and we're much better at it I don't want to be that guy I want to be that guy who enjoys the clash but also recognizes that what's happening now is just as exciting and just as engaging there is a song on the album which I, I think is definitely an, an explicitly political one, and it's also a very funny one, which is Freedom Doesn't Come For Free, which is your, your Phil Oaks-like parable of the, the follies of libertarianism. Now, this is about, if I'm right, what happened in Grafton, New Hampshire, Exactly, correct? yeah, that's true, yeah. Uh, and this was a place where they, they tried to consecrate it quite recently, in fact, yeah. according to rugged libertarian principles uh, and reality in the form of bears intervene. Yeah, bit them in the, in the nether regions. Basically, um, Lib New Hampshire is a pretty libertarian place generally. You know, live free or die. Yeah, indeed. Uh, whereas I prefer, as I say in the song, live free or try to live free. I think that's more of a reality there. Um, but the they came in the libertarians. They they set up shop. They took over the town council. They got rid of the regulations. They dropped all the taxation. And as a result of that, you know, the streetlights stopped working. The garbage wasn't collected as regularly as that. And uh, and because the garbage wasn't collected regularly, the bears that hitherto had lived only in the woods become coming into town. And some people found this charming and fed the bears. Never feed a bear. Listeners to Monocle 24, <laughs> you only take one thing away from this interview. Never feed a bear. Because once a bear knows you've got food in your house, he's going to try and get in your house through the cat flap. And that's indeed what happened. People's houses were invaded by the bears. The bears began eating people's cats uh, and uh, stuff. I mean, it totally got out of hand. And I think there's a lesson there in the idea that, that 
freedom means not having to do anything. Actually, it's the other way around. In order to be free, you have to kind of work harder. You have to have more trust. You have to have more uh, collective action in order for everybody to live free. Because if only some people do it and other people aren't taking part in it, it very soon becomes lopsided and, and kind of spins out of control. That was Billy Bragg speaking to Monaco's Andrew Muller there. The Million Things That Never Happened is out now. Still to come here on The Curator, we head to Germany to hear of the importance of bathroom acoustics. We take a tour of London to learn about the Blue Plaque Scheme. And we head to Stockholm to sample one of the city's newest cocktail bars. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Markus Hippi. The Frankfurter Buchmesse is the most important international trade fair for publishing and content of all kinds, from novels and children's books to scientific databases. Experts from global publishing meet partners from the technology industry and related creative industries, such as film and games. It is the hub of the international rights and licensing trade, as well as a major cultural event, attracting literature enthusiasts and making Frankfurt to the center of the international media world in October. The fair opened on Wednesday and Monocle's Düsseldorf correspondent Mary-Sophie Schwarzer was there to take a look around. For Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Mary joined Monocle's books editor Georgina Godwin, who began by asking what the atmosphere had been like. Everyone is very, very excited to be back at the Frankfurter Buchmesse in person after last year's online-only event. And... Um, Fittingly, the motto is Reconnect. 2,000 exhibitors from 80 countries and more than 300 international authors have gathered on the German fairground, which I must add is significantly less than the 7,450 exhibitors of 2019. Nonetheless, it's a very promising sign for the industry. And when I spoke with Jürgen Bos, the director of the Frankfurter Buchmesse, he was very, very optimistic and described the era as the golden age of publishing. And he's just so excited for everyone to be together again. And this year around, um, it's opening to the public earlier than usual on Friday afternoon already. Um, so everyone will be able to get to go and meet authors, take part in talks. Um, so it is very wonderful to have this event live on the physical fairgrounds again. As you say, the numbers are slightly down on 2019. I wonder if you've observed any other changes. Of course, everyone has to comply with the COVID regulations. So stands are more spacious, halls um, and aisles are larger as well so that people can keep that distance. Um, people are running around in masks. Um, the guest of honor this year is Canada. And they were last year as well, but um, they were given the opportunity again this year to really engage with the public. And they're the first in history to have a virtual pavilion, which you can access online from wherever you are in the world. And they also have the physical pavilion at the book fair. 
And they've had to create so many different iterations of their showcase, of their pavilion, because they've had to comply with the changing regulations. So their first design is very different from their final design. And when you walk into the space now, it's it's very big and you have a lot of space to walk. You're, you're following a little red line that guides you through mountain landscapes that they've created. It's really, really um, moving because you have music, you have poetry in indigenous languages, and you have virtual elements as well as talks with authors and lots of different um, showcases that they have. But that really shows you how much people had to be flexible to change things around to really make it work this year. And of course, not as many people were able to visit from international destinations because of regulations regarding testing and quarantine rules. And Marie-Sophie, what conversations are being had about the future of publishing? The future of publishing is, um, I must say, everyone is very, very optimistic. And of course, everyone was talking about last year, the pandemic, when that hit, um, people were worried at first, but it turns out um, it was a very good year for the publishing industry. And more people picked up a book, um, according to the GSK survey, around 25% more people picked up books. Um, so people did return to, to reading. And even though bookshops struggled, the publishing industry itself really saw a lot of growth. And on stage, Marco Stola, the CEO of Penguin Random House, um, listed a number of reasons why he thinks this is actually the best time in publishing since Gutenberg invented the printing press. And he said, number one, the revenue pool of the industry is growing every year and end consumers are annually spending more money on books. Number two, the publishing industry has a stable and robust business model encompassing print and digital the industry has found a healthy coexistence between print and digital. About 80% is print, 20% digital, and that has really stabilized the book ecosystem. And he also said that the audience is growing with the world population expanding and literacy rates going up. And then again, books for children and young adults have been the fastest growing categories, introducing new generations to books. So you're constantly growing your customer base. Um, so he really, really said that it's the best time to be in publishing. Monocle's Dusseldorf correspondent Marie-Sophie Schwarzer speaking to Georgina Godwin earlier this week. Staying in Germany now to learn more about the importance of acoustics in the bathroom. A hiss from a showerhead or an irritating whirr from a faucet are both noises usually identified and filtered out in the development process for bathroom supplier and manufacturer Hans Grohe. But on this occasion, the brand has amplified these sounds. In celebration of 120 years of the company, Hans Grohe has released an electro-pop album composed from water-disturbance sounds recorded in its in-house development lab. For this week's edition of Monocle on Design, we spoke to Melanie Kruner, the brand's in-house sound designer, to find out more. Most people associate positive thoughts with sounds such as a rushing river or a babbling brook or even pattering raindrops. And depending on their intensity, these sounds can have a calming or activating effect.
of course, there are also disturbance sounds that can be produced by water. Think, for example, of a dripping faucet. And uh, among other things, hissing, whistling or gurgling sounds produced within showers and faucets. And so we have to filter these noises out of our prototypes because they do not match our quality standards. The disturbance sounds are always present in our first prototypes of showers and faucets. So the challenge lies in the filtering out of these sounds without changing the function or the design of the product. When we shared our water disturbance sound files with our colleagues in communications and marketing, the idea to mix them into music tracks was born. And with the help of Florian Kruse, a well-known DJ from Hamburg, we realized this project and released the tracks. Water Tunes is an electropop album with eight songs composed of water disturbance sounds. For example, the Black Forest Water or Love for the Rain. The sounds we were used in various ways so that they are gentle and calming or activating and invigorating. They cover an abundance of water sounds and turn imperfect water sounds into a perfect music album. In the bathroom, the sound design is very important because the space has transformed from a traditional room of hygiene to a well-being space where we can be with ourselves, relax, calm down. And here we want to filter out the sounds and noises we have heard all day on the street. And depending on the intensity of the sound, it can have a calming or activating effect in the home. We wanted to uh, have the joy and have an all-round perfect shower experience. And this includes not only the look or the design of our products, but also the acoustics as a further quality feature. Melanie Gruner, in-house sound designer for bathroom supplier and manufacturer Hans Grower, for the latest episode of Monocle on Design. Staying with design and architecture, now as we turn to this week's installment of Tall Stories, residents of London and regular visitors here will be aware of the hundreds of blue plaques attached to buildings, big and small, grand and humble, old and new, across the city. These little round signs mark the places, homes and businesses where various famous or noteworthy figures from the past were born, lived and worked. The blue plaque scheme 
now run by English Heritage, began all the way back in 1866, making it the oldest such initiative anywhere in the world. There are now well over 900 blue plaques in London, with more being added every year, as Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs reports. Around the corner from Monocle's London office is a row of townhouses. They all look alike. Creamy stone bay windows surrounded by wrought iron railings. They have small balconies, some with tables and chairs, giving the residents views over the central garden of the square. One house, however, stands out a little. Number 34 has a small disc attached to its wall, bearing the name of one of Britain's most famous musicians. It reads, John Lennon, 1940-1980, musician and songwriter, lived here in 1968. The summer that year that Lennon lived in this house, the Beatles released Hey Jude and later The White Album. As he was making some of the songs at the very centre of the British pop music canon and lyrics that have embedded themselves in the minds of not only this country but around the world, he was living here. There are hundreds of these blue plaques around London, celebrating historical figures by linking them to buildings in which they were born, lived or worked. If you've ever wandered the streets of this city, you've probably noticed a few. But I wanted to find out a bit more about the scheme. Where did it come from and who gets to decide who's worthy of being enshrined in circular ceramic? I spoke to Howard Spencer, senior historian for Blue Plaques at English Heritage, to find out who's behind the initiative and the role of the plaques in telling the story of London to those who live or visit here. They first went up in 1867, first one was either in late 66 or 67 it was to Lord Byron and it was just off Oxford Street that's not there anymore but the plaque to Napoleon III French Emperor which is just off St James's Square that went up in 1867 as well and that very much is still there. It was the Society of Arts now the Royal Society of Arts that put them up for the first 35 years or so they put up about one or two a year, so not too many. It was the London County Council took it on in the early years of the 20th century. And from then on, it became very much a regular thing. The only real sort of hiatuses were during the two world wars. So if we go up to the present, who is it that gets to decide who's recognised by the plaques? So there is a panel of experts drawn from various historical disciplines who are experts in particular areas in which we receive the public nominations because it's a public scheme runs by nominations. So the panel sits three times a year and they sift through the nominations received and they choose the ones to be given further research into the addresses. We choose hopefully the best possible address from all viewpoints to put the plaque on. And that's basically how it happens. And what kind of historical figures are the plaques trying to commemorate? Well, it's incredibly eclectic, and I think that's one of its strengths. It covers basically all areas of human endeavour. That's what it tries to do. So it's people that work in the entertainment field, but also scientists, also educators, artists, writers. It's pretty well everybody, and it's not just individuals either. There are some plaques that are to groups. For example, there's a plaque to the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood group of artists, And there are some that even commemorate events. It is incredibly broad. The plaques create a new map of the city, one populated by reasons to celebrate London's heritage, musical, literary, political, scientific and otherwise. They include both household names and more unusual choices. The plaque to Mary Hughes in Bethnal Green describes her as friend of all in need. 
In the early 20th century, Hughes worked as a social worker, converting a pub in East London into a refuge for those who needed sanctuary. For Howard, the diversity of those honoured with plaques helps tell the complex story of the city. I think they are a very important sort of reminder that we are, as it were, standing on the shoulder of giants. And it's, you know, there are many people that went before us. They also just function as a reminder that the buildings are about a bit more than bricks and mortar, They're about the lives of those who went before. When I spoke to Howard, the final plaque of the year was about to be unveiled. That one's to Helena Normanton, who was a pioneering woman barrister. She was one of the first women barristers to practice in the early 20th century. And that's going up where she was living when she was training and during the early part of her career in the 1920s in Bloomsbury. As well as telling the physical history of the city and its residents, serving in quite a unique way as a form of free public education, the blue plaques have a role in preserving the cityscape itself. It's important to emphasise that the plaques are not just about the individual concern, because most of them do commemorate individuals. They're also about the buildings, about the link between the person and the building. And in that way, they do function as a kind of soft power in helping to preserve historic buildings. There are a number of examples of where the plaque on a building doesn't confer legislative protection. It's not like listing or anything like that, but where it has raised awareness, creates a kind of virtuous circle. People want to preserve a building if they know it had an, an interesting personal association. I think that's an underrated feature of the scheme. And it was intended by its founders that it would work as a means of preserving buildings. And I think it has. Thanks to Monocle Sophie Monahan-Coombs for that. Still to come here on The Curator, one of London's best bakers shares a favourite recipe. And Monocle's Welsh contingent tells us why their homeland wants them back. Stay tuned. You are with the curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. Next up is a highlight from food neighbourhoods. This week, Helen Evans, the head of bread and pastry at Floor Bakery in London's Borough Market, shares a recipe for brown butter cakes. Hi there, my name is Helen, and I am the head of bread and pastry at Floor in Borough Market soon to be floor over at Spa Terminus in Bermondsey. We're about to move into a slightly bigger space, but our products will still be available from floor in Borough from the hatch as usual. And we're trying to use as many heritage grains as possible. So old wheat varietals, and we're adding these into our breads and into our pastries. And hopefully you can taste the difference when you come and try our products. And what I'm going to be telling you today is how to make a brown butter cake. So this is one of our favourite pastry items. We sell lots of them through the door here at Floor in Borough. The thing that gives these lovely brown butter cakes their really kind of gooey and treacly flavour as well is the panella that we use. So we get a really nice unrefined cane sugar. We actually import it from South America, but it's well worth it. It's really tasty and it makes these little cakes really moist. So the brown butter cake is a lot like a financier or a frangipan. A great recipe to do at home. It's really simple and it's gluten-free as well. So the first step to this is you need the right size mould. So we use a little mini muffin silicone mould at floor. The measurements are around 280 mil by 500 diameter. So it's a really small little mini muffin. 
And the first step to this recipe is making a really dark brown butter. So we put about 150 grams of butter into a saucepan and just melt it and then continue cooking it down until you see all the milk solids start to turn brown and caramelize. So you want a really intensely kind of roasty flavor from the butter. And then you need to weigh out the dry ingredients. So panela is our unrefined sugar, which you can get from most health food shops actually. So you need about 150 grams of panela and mix this with 60 grams of ground almonds. We managed to source some ground almonds with the skins on. So it's like a wholemeal ground almond. So it means there's less byproduct and also increases the flavor. So 60 grams of ground almonds, if you can get with the skin on, it's better. 20 grams of buckwheat flour, which is gluten-free. And you can get really nice British-grown buckwheat flour from Hodmadod online. And 20 grams of corn flour, and this helps to stabilize the recipe, and four grams of salt. So if you weigh all of those dry ingredients together, and then pour the brown butter so it can still be warm. In fact, it helps if the butter is still warm. So measure out 100 grams of the brown butter and pour it directly onto the dry ingredients and kind of mix it through just with your hands is fine. As long as the butter's not too hot, you don't burn yourself. And then 100 grams of egg whites. And you can just hand whip these, actually. You don't even need a machine. Just hand whisk them until they start to look a little bit frothy and keep whipping until you kind of have a soft peak. So not as stable and stiff as you would want for a meringue, but a nice soft peak. And then you're gonna fold everything together. So it's a really low maintenance, really easy recipe. Fold everything together until you have a nice batter. And then you need to grease your silicone mini muffin molds just with a, a little splash of oil, olive oil or grapeseed oil. And then we weigh approximately 35 to 40 grams of batter per mold. And then you're going to bake them at about 180 degrees in a domestic oven for between 14 and 16 minutes until they're really golden brown on the top, nicely caramelized. And at this point, they should just pop out of the silicone molds really easily. And they're delicious when they're hot and equally delicious when they're cold. And they reheat really well. So you can even keep them in the freezer and then reheat them for four to five minutes in a warm oven and they'll be just as delicious as when they first came out of the oven. And that's it. Really easy, really low maintenance. Helen Evans of Floor Bakery here in London for the latest episode of Food Neighbourhoods. Staying in the world of food and drink for our next highlight, and it's the latter that we focus on now. Stockholm's bar scene has been given a shake and a stir recently with a handful of new cocktail venues, picking up some of the most prestigious bar awards in Europe. In Östermalm, the city's well-heeled business and high-end fashion districts, a place literally named a bar called Gemma is leading the pack. Monocle's Maddie Savage went to get a taste of what's on offer. I'm just heading towards a bar called Gemma. It's a couple of minutes walk from Stureplan, where many of Stockholm's most luxurious bars, clubs and restaurants cluster together. A lot of them quite glitzy and bold. This street feels a little quieter and more understated. And it's here that in March 2019, two friends took a sledgehammer to a small neighbourhood cafe and transformed it into one of the city's most popular cocktail venues. Hello! Hi! Hi, I'm Johan. I'm uh, the owner here at the bar called Gemma. 
Super nice to have you guys here. And uh, obviously, as you can see, we're just setting up for the Friday service. We produce somewhere between 300 and 350 drinks on a Friday. Uh, we only have 36 seats, so we um, there's it's very, very electric uh, in here, which is lovely. Tell me what you were setting out to do when you transformed this former coffee shop into a cocktail bar with leather seats, plants, low-hanging lamps. Uh, Oscar Gregoris and myself uh, started this project together. We were both working at bars at the time. We were working together. So after the shifts, we went here uh, during the nights and basically painted, uh, did all the cabling, designed. So it was, a, it was a long and rough period. Initially, the thought was just to create a, a very nice living room. What was the initial reception? A lot of people got amazed on how simple it actually is, um, because the design is very simple. The area which Gemma is located in, which is Esteban, one of the more posher areas in the city, uh, a lot of people felt that, why would you open a, a place designed like this over here? You should be in the south, right? The that southern neighborhood, Sedamam, former yeah. industrial area, yeah, exactly. known for yeah, being a bit more where the creatives hang. Sure, exactly. But then as soon as people sat down, people started to absolutely fall in love. We play music, which is rock and roll and, and, and blues, which is, has a big connection to my uh, childhood. And a lot of people comment on the atmosphere of saying, like, it's so friendly here, you know, uh, because at some other places it can be quite rough here in the city where people don't really talk to each other. Whereas here, people just, you could tell when people sit down in the sofas, they kind of like have this long breathe out thing where they're like, okay, nice. I can just relax, you know? Yeah, it is very soothing in here. Yeah. And you've had huge success with a string of awards. I'm just going to go through a couple of them. Best oh. Cocktail Bar in Sweden 2020. That was at the Bartender's Choice Awards. Yes. One of the most prestigious prizes in the Nordic bar scene. Also recognised among the top 10 best new international cocktail bars in Europe. Uh, Tales of the Cocktail Foundation uh, Spirited Awards that was for. I, I could go on. Were you expecting this? Just you reading that gives me goosebumps. We did not expect it. Uh, we didn't set out to win awards. We created a bar that we want to have. But obviously fantastic. We're super proud, super proud. I want to ask you about the name, mm -hmm. a bar called Gemma. Mm -hmm. Who is Gemma? Is it an ex-partner, sister, friend? <laughs> so Gemma is not an ex-partner. It's not an animal. It's actually an acronym of five words, which is the business philosophy. G stands for generosity, meaning there's nothing here we don't talk about. Our idea is that if we can inspire people, then the whole scene can become a lot better. Emotional, well, being at a bar should be emotional. And then you have the first M, which is uh, multilateral. Being a bar, we're also a consultancy firm when it comes to uh, beverage programs, and we're also a bar shop. So everything in this, in this building is essentially for sale. Glassware, tools, everything. So people can come here, get inspired, and take this vibe home with them? Essentially, yes. Uh, second M is for mindful. We think about everything we do in our program. When we talk about it, it's like everything from zero waste to sustainable. We're not a 100% sustainable or zero waste bar, but we think about it every single day. And A stands for artisan, uh, meaning an artist. And it's the same words in, in Swedish. Generositet, emotionellt, medvetenhet, mångfald och artisteri. Can we take a look at the menu? Yeah, sure. It's right here. 
So I'm looking for a mocktail yeah. today, and it's a very autumnal, crisp day. Mm -hmm. What might suit that mood for me? I think you're going to um, enjoy the Cardinal, which is uh, based on Three Spirits Social Elixir, which is a phenomenal non-alcoholic product, quite umami-ish, rich. Uh, fresh pineapple, bergamot, and um, some bitter herbs. So Oscar behind the bar is going to sort this out. Yeah. Uh, your co-founder. Hi, Oscar. Hi, how are you? Good. Talking just briefly about the non-alcoholic cocktails, you know, we, we spend as much time on non-alcoholic as with alcohol because it shouldn't be like a major decision if you want to be non-alcoholic, right? It shouldn't be just like, you know, I'm pregnant or I'm, I'm driving. It's just like the feeling around the table should be exactly the same whether you're drinking alcohol or not. Oh, well, my, my mocktail's arrived with some fresh mint sticking out the top. Wow. That's delicious. Thank you. Really rich, full of flavor. Definitely autumn in a cup. You can, you can taste the pineapple, but also it's kind of got a homely feel. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's nice. I'm happy that you liked it. Mm. So what are your ambitions? Will there be more bars called Gemma cropping up around Stockholm, around Sweden, around the world? The short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer is that we're actually in a expansion right now. That sounds like a bit of a secret you can't quite tell us about yet. No, exactly. It's going to be. Uh, it's definitely going to be out there in Europe. In Europe. So yes, but it's super, super exciting. But obviously, the whole expansion has been a little bit on on hold because of the world situation, of course. And now we are enjoying that everything is quotation back to normal that we actually got through this and we're still here because one thing which a lot of people don't know there's no no investor behind Gemma there's no one just pushing in money it's only me so that's something that I just want to enjoy mm. and and we'll see where we go from there yeah well congratulations we're coming up towards peak cocktail time people in this neighborhood starting to finish work maybe heading here after an early bite to eat so I'll, I'll leave you to finish off the preparations while I keep uh, sipping on my cardinal. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Mm. That was Monaco's Savage in Stockholm for this week's edition of The Menu. And finally on this week's show, the Welsh government has announced a drive to persuade more young adults to stay in their homeland. It follows concerns that the percentage of working-age citizens is dropping to worryingly low levels. So why do young Welsh people leave to pursue careers elsewhere? And what could tempt them to stay? Well, we thought we'd put this to test with three members of Monocle's Welsh contingent who all grew up in Wales, but now live elsewhere. Monocle's Rhys James is based at our London HQ and has been speaking to our Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis and our Hong Kong Bureau Chief James Chambers. Let's have a listen. So I should start by saying Borida to Thomas or good morning. Borida, Rhys. And to James in Hong Kong, Noswaita or good evening. Good evening, Rhys. Noswaita. Thomas, let's start with you, this, this Welsh Government initiative. Do you think it's broadly kind of positive? Is it what needs to be done to persuade more people to stay in Wales? I think it broadly is quite positive, actually, because I think this is quite a, an interesting time for Wales. Obviously, if you go back to the Brexit referendum, I think there were only five parts of the country that voted to remain in the EU and the rest voted to leave. 
Um, you know, I think Wales's issue maybe for a long time has been, you know, the economy has been skewed to the public sector. So I believe that the uh, National Health Service, the NHS, is still the largest employer in Wales. And, you know, jobs like teaching and other public sector jobs like those are still kind of the dominant ones. You know, I spoke to Mark Drake for the First Minister of Wales a few months ago for Monocle 24. I thought it was interesting, his characterization of the way Wales had experienced the pandemic, actually. And I think that he said that it gave, had given him a sense that, you know, people in Wales do actually kind of realise in quite a keen way now that Wales is a very distinctive place and distinct place. And the way that the pandemic, for example, was handled in Wales was pretty different to the way it was handled in other parts of the UK. And that perhaps has given kind of a different sense of, of pride or identity that I think could perhaps be something to be tapped into in a, in a proposal like this to keep young people in Wales, to keep them proud of where they're from and to contribute to a country that, you know, there's really quite a lot to be done in many ways, you know, in terms of the kind of economy Wales has at the moment that, you know, they're really could be a lot of potential for young people if they did want to stay to make a real real impact if you like there's lots to get of unpack there thomas james thomas kind of alluded to it a bit there and you spoke about it earlier when you were talking about the importance of keeping young people in wales and making sure that people are going to university in wales and those opportunities are there how do you think that that can be done how can we create those those opportunities for the best and brightest in wales i guess the key thing that Thomas mentioned is is jobs and, and attractive jobs. He mentioned the NHS and he's from Cardiff. I grew up in, in Swansea, which is the, the kind of second city about an hour west. And, you know, the joke when we were growing up is that, uh, you know, the only employer in town is the DVLA, which is the, the kind of vehicle licensing authorities. It's the one you get your you apply for the driving license in the UK. And that's one of the, perhaps one of the main reasons that people might know Swansea around the UK is that we have the DVLA there. So that was the, the one of the biggest um, employers uh, alongside uh, perhaps uh, call centres. Um, so there wasn't really much to entice people to stay in, in Swansea or even to come back if you graduated from a university somewhere else. So I think, you know, they really have to focus on getting large companies and large employers and good jobs to come to Wales. I mean, famously, there's only one FTSE 100 company in Wales, the car insurer Admiral. We seem to do well in the car industry, maybe. When you can count things like that on one hand, you know you've got a bit of a problem. So I think it's it's trying to convince large companies to come to Wales. And, and we often, we look at Ireland as a case study of a country that has been able to kind of pick itself up and make the most of its advantages. And perhaps Wales can always learn a lot from that. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole independence debate, but you know, there are certainly things that Wales can do to, to build, build on its brand. Uh, but I wouldn't discount the value of the Welsh diaspora either. Um, just because people leave Wales, it's not necessarily a brain drain. You know, we're in Canada, we're in Hong Kong, uh, you know, flying the flag. And who knows, one day we may come back. Yeah, the independence debates for another day, gentlemen. Briefly before you go, Thomas, what could tempt you back? 
Well, it's quite a good question, that, Reese. actually. I think the quality of life is very good. Again, I think, you know, to go back to the language, the government has put a goal to, to achieve one million Welsh speakers by 2050, I think it is. And I think, feel as though maybe it'd be nice to play a part in that. Maybe, as I say, not quite now, but maybe down the line. But I think if you look like things like the Welsh language economy, there's a very rich cultural sector, lots of Welsh language production houses uh, producing TV and films, some of which have been picked up by international national sort of broadcasters and I think the food and drink sector is really exciting too and I think there are very sort of clear gaps in the market you know I think if you look at hospitality Cardiff for example could have much more you know but much bigger array of, of sort of good interesting hotels for example you know for international visitors and I think all these things sort of matter i think it kind of has to go hand in hand in a way uh, that you know people uh, from elsewhere want to come and sort of set up in wales but also people at home feel that the there's enough sort of ex- exciting things or things that would make a change or, or fill a gap in a market that they want to contribute to so i'm not sure maybe to be a bit sort of softier by the end but i think definitely sort of being close to family and friends would be quite nice again <laughs> one day um so that's definitely sort of a goal for for later down the down the line research say and james same question to you do you think you go back to swans you're happy with your new life in hong kong well i mean i spent over more than half my life outside of wales now but i'm still a very proud welshman i definitely echo what thomas has just said when i left wales and perhaps for for the last 15 or 16 17 years i'd never even contemplated the idea of moving back to wales I always perhaps considered that if I'd ever go home, it would be to London, but that's completely changed now. And I'm actually, you know, seriously considering, you know, going back to, to Wales and, and, and having a life there close to family and having a bit more space, you know, being by the sea. I'm actually questioning whether I could or would want to live in London again. So, you know, I would say it's gone from being an impossibility to something that I actively considering in some point in in the future. I wouldn't say it's uh, imminent, but I'd say Wales is definitely back on my agenda. My thanks to Monocle's Welsh Dragons, Rhys James, Thomas Lewis and James Chambers. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening.